It's November 1943. The bombs of World War II fall on Latter-day Saints in both England and Germany, causing fear, pain, and death. With many priesthood holders away at war, members on both sides courageously work at home to sustain and build the church. The following summer in Salt Lake City, Utah, 17-year-old Neil A. Maxwell volunteers to serve his country in the war. These historic stories are next in Chapter 29, Tis Eventide. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Nathan Waite, who is the editorial manager of the Saints Project. Welcome to the podcast, Nate. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, we've had quite a few members of the Saints team join us on this podcast. And Nate, we would love to have you tell our listeners what you and your team do on the project. Yeah, thanks. I'd love to talk about that. As an editor, my part of the process really starts about the time that the writers and the historians start thinking that their work on the chapter is done. So they've done all their research. They found the stories. They've crafted it in the way that they think will resonate with readers and then they kind of workshop it among the other historians and researchers. They send it out to expert reviewers on that time period, on that subject. And then by that point, there's comments in the margin. Everybody's had their say, just just marked up galore. It's almost hard to see the text because there's so much editing that's happened. And so the first thing that I actually do once they hand it off to me is scrub all that out. Because what I want to do is keep myself away from all of that discussion that happened, why we did it this way, what we could have done, but we didn't do. I want to just look at what ended up on the page and just respond to that. So I clean up any edits that have happened. I delete all the comments and just start with a blank page with just the words they think should appear for the reader. So in that way, I get to be the first reader, which is really fun. I'm not a historian. I'm not an expert, but I love to read. I love to learn new things. And so I feel honored that I get to be the first reader to respond to this chapter. And so I will go through and really advocate for the reader, for the audience. What's going to make sense? What's going to help them feel what we want them to feel? What's going to help them learn what they want to learn? And have we hit that mark? And a lot of times they really do. Sometimes I'll read a chapter or, or a scene and just need to change a little bit of the grammar here and or there and maybe leave a, a question saying, hey, maybe you might want to rephrase this a certain way and then it's good to go. Other times it'll come to me and I feel like it needs something more. I think it needs to be totally restructured or I think maybe this part is unclear or this part maybe won't resonate with people internationally or whatever. And so I'll maybe leave a lot of comments. I, I think when new writers come on, sometimes they're surprised at the level of review that happens to these chapters. Thank you. I love having a better understanding of that. And Nate, you've been on the project since volume one, right? Yeah, I got in at the beginning. I got to be the editor on Saints volume one, and then my colleague took volume two, and then I stepped back in for volume three. It's been a lot of fun because previous to this, I worked on the Joseph Smith papers. And so I feel like I had the restoration period down. I knew that story pretty well, the early Utah period pretty well. But I mean, the first half of the 20th century, I knew nothing. I knew there was like a couple of world wars and a depression and women's suffrage and some of these other things. But I just learned so much as I went along and it was such a joy for me. So I really enjoyed learning about this period of church history. I'll be honest with you. I came into it wondering, is this really going to be very interesting? Because it's not Joseph Smith. It's not Brigham Young. But I think it's probably my favorite of three. There's just so much new that has not been explored. And I'm sure you've talked about that on the podcast too, but there's just so much that we don't know about. It's really been an education for me, really a masterclass. For me, this is my period 
that I specialize in, the early 20th century, late 19th right. century. And it's great to hear that you've been able to come away with this appreciation for the period. Now, I do have to ask, we're making our way through the book we're here in chapter 29. We haven't got long left. Yeah. I wondered if you would mind sharing with us which of the stories in this volume touched you or inspired you in some way. One that is actually in this chapter, in chapter 29, I have loved to get to know is Helga Berth, but I never would have run into her. She's an everyday member living in Europe, and from early in her life when she has to stand up to bullies as a schoolgirl and defend her faith, and then just on through the incredible loss that we see in this chapter with her loved ones that, that pass away and the near-death experiences that she has, and her story's not done, right? We're going to find out more as we go on. Her experience as a missionary and after the war, just really touching. She's somebody that I hope I get to meet someday and shake her hand and just thank her for her faith and her example. Well, Nate, chapter 29, we have Latter-day Saints on both sides of the conflict. We have German Latter-day Saint, we've got British, we've got Americans. So for me, as a British member of the church, it was quite nice to be introduced to Nellie's story and to be able to be involved in telling that because so much of our church history goes either right back to 1837 when the missionaries arrive or it's the history that we've lived through or that we've known about maybe from the 1960s onwards. So one of the things that was really nice was I recently visited Nellie's home. It's still there the house with its beautiful facade and very small little front garden, front yard is still there. And I was kind of blown away as I thought about the men and women that had gone through the doorframe, that had been inside, that had had their spirits lifted, who had the opportunity to partake of the sacrament when the world around them was literally falling apart and just to see this building which today you would walk past and maybe not think twice about just has such a powerful yet almost forgotten history so of course in this volume and you mentioned you worked on volume one we do find ourselves going to lots of different locations many different countries we've got people from all walks of life and different languages and so on I wonder if you could tell us about some of the blessings and challenges of working on this volume, which has been so international. Yeah. If it's been a masterclass in history, volume three has also been a masterclass in other cultures and other people. You know, how else are we going to find out what's happening in Guatemala or Japan or, you know, Austria, these places that I don't think a whole lot about in my day-to-day -day life. But the church is there. There are saints there that are trying their best amid these world wars and other challenges. When we think about the spirit of Elijah, we usually think about finding our kindred dead and linking ourselves to them through temple work. But I've actually reflected a few times as I've worked on volume three that I think the spirit of Elijah goes even farther, just connecting us to the greater human family. And I really have felt at times a nearness of people as I've read their stories, and they become alive to us. And I think that's one of the great things that Saints Volume 3 is going to do, and probably the Saints Project altogether, is bind us together as the body of Christ, as fellow saints across generations, all trying to do our best to follow Jesus Christ. And I just feel so close to them when, when I get to hear their stories. And they can be people that live totally different lives than I did in places that are so different than my life. But just being able to hear the, the struggles that they have that resonate with struggles that I have and opportunities and testimony that they receive that is so similar to experiences that I have, that's been one of the great blessings. James, I think it's so neat you visited Nellie's home. 
It was really interesting to me reading her story along with all of the historical facts, too, that happened separate to her membership in the church. And I think readers are going to find that fascinating as well. Uh, Let's listen to an excerpt from the book for one of these examples. During meetings with the soldiers, Nellie could tell how much they missed their families. Since the military censored outgoing mail, loved ones often had no idea where their soldiers were stationed. Nellie began writing letters to the soldiers' families, describing how wonderful it was to have their brother, son, husband, or fiancé in her home. She included her address on the envelope as a clue to where the soldiers were located. James, we're hearing about censoring. We read about some of these conditions a little bit, but we want to ask you from your experience and your expertise, what were some of these conditions like in Britain during the war? Well, Shailen, it's a great question because many people have heard stories about the war, but there's been a general forgetting of what life was like. And we just kind of dumb it down and say, oh, it was a difficult time. But this was really what you could describe as a total war. And what I mean by that is that every aspect of the country was geared towards the success of the war, of defeating the Nazis for the British in this instance. And so that meant that people had to make tremendous sacrifices with their liberties, with their time, with their resources. And so the government has to impose some of the restrictions. And one of those restrictions is censoring, which in many cases meant that men and women who were perhaps involved in the war effort in some way were not able to talk freely about their experiences, their observations, even where they are, in case that can fall into the wrong hands and betray, accidentally perhaps, but betray some important secrets or information that could keep people safe. And so you might imagine, if you put yourselves in Nellie's position and other British saints at the time, is that the men of the church have largely gone off to war And so it's the sisters who are shouldering not just increased responsibilities in the church, but they've got increased responsibilities in their communities. We have women who are volunteering in different ways. We have women who are going into the workplace. They're going to work in ammunition factories. And so the people who are remaining at home are being stretched in all of these different directions. And so there is this constant fear of potentially being bombed or having some other horrible destruction brought upon you. And later in the war, we see rockets being fired at the country. And in fact, one of the church buildings in London is almost destroyed by a German rocket and the whole building is damaged and they move the headquarters to another part. So for members of the church, for the general public, this is a time of tightening the belt, of putting up with really difficult things. And it makes me so grateful as my family are a military family, they've all served in the forces, but whether they were in the armed forces or not, British people, and this is true of people in other countries, they went through something almost unimaginable for me of giving so much of their freedom in order to try and help the war effort. And it would not have been a particularly happy time for many people. This would have been a sad and depressing state of affairs. Yeah, thank you. It's so interesting to hear that from your perspective as someone who 
is living there right now and knows the history much better than I do. And probably our readers will appreciate that as well. James, were you involved at all with writing these stories or finding and researching these stories? I was. Now, I was able to help particularly with Nellie and Jennifer's story and to a much lesser extent with Helga. But some of the research obviously wasn't ultimately included in the book. And that's just how that goes sometimes. And there was a story of how Nellie and Jennifer are subjected, their town is subjected to a German bombing. And we see parallels because Helga over in Germany is having the same thing, the British and, and other allied forces are bombing Germany. And so I just found it fascinating that Latter-day Saints on opposing sides of the conflicts are hunkering down in the face of military aggression from one another, and yet they have the same beliefs, they're praying to the same God, they're asking for probably similar things. And for me, it was just quite amazing to see how the war was disrupting saints across the board, but how they were able to adapt and how they were able to be resilient to this conflict and ultimately maintain and strengthen their faith. It's hopefully, for our listeners and readers, incredibly inspiring. What you're saying, James, reminds me um, one of the cool things about saints, right? That if you were going to try to tell the story of the church more comprehensively, I mean, we could do volumes and volumes and volumes. There's just so much material there that we had to make choices about what we cut and what we just barely allude to. But the great thing is the sources are all there. So, for example, with Nellie Middleton, one of the sources that we cite that I'm sure you're familiar with is that later on, Jennifer, as an older woman, writes an article about her mother and the branch and publishes it in the Enzyme. And we link to that in the footnote. So you can go and if you want to learn more, it's right there. You can go link to it and learn even more about Jennifer's experiences as a little girl as she reflects on it when she's older. You know how it mentions in the chapter that Nellie would write to the families of the soldiers, hey, your son husband was here with us worshiping. And what Jennifer says in the article is that sometimes the family wrote, wrote back and said, thank you so much because we didn't even know they were still alive. This was just contact that they hadn't heard from their soldier in so long. And she talks about how when they would find out that a soldier had passed away in battle, it, 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 it was like a family member for them, right? Because they'd grown so close to these branch meetings that they had. And I just love that about saints. I've heard it described that the narrative that we get in the book is like the tip of the iceberg. And this podcast gets us a little deeper down the iceberg. And the sources in the footnotes, you can go as deep as you want. And the sources are there available for you that you can go study and learn more and go as deep as you want. And I love that about this project. I think you're right. I mean... In chapter 26, where we talk about the bombing of Cheltenham, we're able to capture the essence of it, but there is so much more that readers can go in and find out about the history of it. You're right, we point the sources and we direct readers to places they can find out more information. And I feel that you and the rest of the team are able to confidently say, if you're not happy with what we've done, go and check it. By all means, feel free. But it's a great springboard for perhaps those who want to know more to dig into it. Nate, from your perspective, why do you think these particular stories, especially the perspective of British saints during the war, why were they included in saints? One thing is, I remember as we were working early on in Volume 3 and everybody was looking forward to the World War II section, not because we're like excited that the world's at war and so many people are suffering, but it really makes for amazing storytelling. And I think the reason for that is because in times of crisis, what's really important and what's really not, it becomes really clear what your priorities are and what you care about and what's not important just drops out. And so you get this sense of 
what is really crucial in my life? And it's your faith, and it's your family, and it's your loved ones, and it's these connections. And so I think maybe that's why these stories resonate so much, is because it simplifies things for us in a way. It says, well, when all is said and done, what really matters? And these sections show that. And Nate, just to add to that, I think these stories are representative. They are not the definitive experience of either the German saints or the British saints, but there's enough material in these two stories to show what life was generally like to be a, a German saint. But it offers enough personal experiences to capture the reader's interest. As a historian, of course, when we're looking at the volume, when we're looking at the events that have taken place and when we're charting a course, as it were, to tell the story of saints for this volume, there are few other events than something as encompassing as a global war, which completely grasps not just one or two societies, but essentially dozens of them around the world, and they have an impact on others, is that it was impossible for us to skip past something that had such an impact, not just on the lives of the members, but on the way that the church even operated. For example, with Nelly, we are able to see how a faithful sister is able to show how the church could continue in her area despite the absence of priesthood holders. And so there are obviously lots of difficult decisions to be made about what's not included and what is included. But both of these two stories that we've talked about so far, Nelly's and Helga's, capture the essence of the experience of Latter-day Saints. And that's what we're after here in Saints, is to tell the story of the church through the eyes of its members. Well, Nate, just to kind of change direction for a moment and to talk about some of the effects of the war on other societies, let's take a moment to jump over to Brazil. Now, I think readers are going to be fascinated to know a little bit more about the history of Brazil from this few little bits that we have about language and how it wasn't just Portuguese that was spoken. And we find out it's you know, around 1938 that there's this emphasis on Portuguese. So, Nate, could you tell us what were some of the challenges the church faced as it tried to adapt to this new law of only speaking Portuguese in public meetings? Yeah, and one thing I think it's fun is this podcast echoes the chapter, which is you can be in one place, and then the next sentence, you're going to be clear on the other side of the world. And that's kind of new, right? Because in volume one, we're mostly talking about these little places in New York and Missouri, and, and now we're really hopping all over the world as you turn the page. And I just love that. Brazil's near and dear to my heart. I served as a missionary there in southern Brazil, in, in Porto Alegre. And some of the towns that we served in that you'd knock on a door and the person would only speak German. Or it could be that they didn't want to talk to us, and so they would only they would only speak German to us. But the German heritage is very strong in some of these towns, dating back to the World War II era. And so it's interesting to me that that's where they started. And it might have been because that's how the leaders were more comfortable. They came from this European context. You know, you had Reinhold Stuf, who was the mission president, and so German was more comfortable for them down there. But with this change, they had to adapt, as so often seems to happen. You have to adapt to the situation you're given. And, and what a blessing it turned out to be, to turn down to Portuguese and to just see how that blossomed over the decades. At this year, they're talking about opening the first mission in Brazil, and now we have something like 35 missions in Brazil. So this is like a really key moment where you see them turn. Not that the Germans were not worthy of the gospel, and they joined as well, but this turn to, well, let's meet the South Americans where they are, is just going to explode and have enormous ramifications for the church going well into volume four. As I was reading this chapter, I felt a lot of the saints 
they were experiencing a lot of fear during this time, but then also frustration as they're trying to learn more about the gospel and missionaries are speaking different languages than them and being taken from the area. But we have this incident in Brazil where Brazil declares war on Germany and that German language proselyting stops, which we talked about. But it just brings us to this real crisis point as American missionaries, because American missionaries are also not allowed to enter the country. And the church is vulnerable because there's a lack of local members who speak Portuguese who can even serve in the church. And I just loved this story of Claudio. And I think a lot of our readers probably connected with him as well. But he was a very recent convert, just barely called as an elder. And he just felt so underprepared to serve as president of the Sao Paulo branch. Let's just share this extract from the book about how Claudio felt about this. Despite his inexperience, Claudio trusted that God had a purpose for calling him to lead the branch. If it is the true church, if there is a God in charge, he had to select someone, he told himself. He had to choose someone with enthusiasm that could receive authority and do the work. I think it's pretty clear why this is included in the story. Just his feelings are probably so relatable to so many people around the world. And I think the story is really hopeful and very inspiring. But Nate, I think many of these early pioneers would be so amazed at the work that has grown in Brazil in the years since these scenes. What are some of the ways that these pioneers help prepare the church in Brazil to be what it is today? I think Claudio is a great example of this, right? One of the major things you see in the volume that I was really not aware of is this transition from the missionaries coming to an area outside the United States and kind of running the show in a ward or in a breakfast in a branch, right? And the wars make it so that they can't do it anymore. They're forced out, and then the people that are still there have to step in. And in some cases, they're ready, and in some cases, they're not, but it's their moment. And Claudio is one of those. He stands up and he's interpreting for the mission president. And he says, all right, we're going to make you the new branch president. Like, what? But he just goes with it. He feels these feelings of inadequacy that we've all felt before, but it's his moment. And he steps up to it. And I think we all have those in our lives where we have imposter syndrome, where we feel like surely the, the Lord could find somebody better than me to do this. But you're the one. You're the one that the Lord wants to do it. And Claudio is a great example to us. He just goes and does it. Nobody can play the organ. Okay, I'll go learn to play the organ and I'll do that, right? And that's what makes the work of the Lord great is that the Lord qualifies us to do the things that he wants us to do. And I just love how that is reflected so well in Claudio's experience. Well, and I think that just creates a great legacy too for the members to be part of and to follow. One of the things I love about the story of Claudio in Brazil and their conversion and service in the church is that really they're quite young and in fact many of the characters in the stories in this chapter are young we have a 10 year old jennifer middleton we've got a 17 year old neil maxwell who's going off to fight a war i certainly was not prepared to sign up for a war at 17 and go and fight for my country helga birth who is young but she's also mourning the loss of her husband and her young cousin kurt as well ray hermanson is this 20-year-old American, and when he knocks on her door, he's not a missionary. He's there as a member of the American Armed Forces who's going to go away and put his life at risk. It occurs to me that that's a through line throughout the whole series, is young people. Of course, Joseph Smith was 14 when he had the first vision. The Lord is using a teenager to do the work. You see these great examples of young people. I think it's awesome to see Neil Maxwell. Probably readers who know Elder Maxwell from his later service in the church, they wouldn't expect him to see him in this wartime context and to see him grow up 
to see how his faith anchors him at this time that could have thrown him for a loop, could have totally changed the trajectory of his life in a negative way, but instead he anchors his faith and pulls through and it strengthens him. And I think about today and the huge focus on youth and helping them learn to lead. In, in my ward, I work with the teacher's quorum, and it's incredible how much faith the Lord has in them because sometimes it's hard for me to have that same faith. Say, okay, you guys are going to be in charge of this, and it might fail and it might work, but that is what we're doing now. We're not leading them and doing the work for them. We're saying, no, you are the leaders of this quorum or this class, and it's on your shoulders. And that's cool because that tracks with the history. That's why the Lord has always done it. He's always put responsibility on young people's shoulders and realized that they've got to step up and find their faith and find their role in the church. Nate, you mentioned Neil A. Maxwell, and I just kind of perked up because I'm like, I know him. He passed away when I was a teenager, and it just really closed that gap of history for me. And it is so engaging when you feel these connections to these people in these places. Yeah, not to spoil it, but later on, Gordon B. Hinckley shows up. And I remember when I opened that chapter, like, Gordon B. Hinckley, yes, this is my prophet. You know, it's fun to feel that connection and to realize these things didn't happen so long ago that we can't connect them. Like, this is our story. Well, I really liked your comment, Nate, about the young men that you're responsible over, because we have this with Neil Maxwell, we see him going off with this courage and this desire to serve his country, but he has this almost awakening. He describes it as almost like heaven. Our home was heaven, he said, and he's thrust into the world. And I think anyone that goes away to war is unlikely to ever come back the same person. And so one of the tragedies in this chapter is that so many of these young people are going to see some pretty horrific things, and that is going to change them. So Nate, how do you think this story might help those young men that you're responsible for? I think that it will be easy for some of them to see themselves in Neil Maxwell this stage of life where they're feeling a little awkward, where they don't know where their place is in the world, and they might see Neil wanted to play ball, but he was kind of scrawny, so he couldn't, so he turned to pig farming or whatever it was, right? And he's got this acne that scarred his face, and I don't know that it really was, but he comes across as somebody who's maybe kind of an outsider, doesn't know where he fits in, and then he sees this great opportunity to join the army. It's going to make him a man. As we're going to find out in the next chapter, he, it really does change him and clarify some things to him, but not in the ways that he thought. He's going to change his viewpoint a lot. It's kind of this classic coming-of-age story that will be, I hope, for young men and young women too, a model for how to grow into adulthood, how to grow up, how to find your place in the world, in a changing world, right? I mean, this is a world that Neil Maxwell would not have ever expected that he was going to come into when he was younger. Maybe like in our own world with COVID, with unrest, with all this. It's a world that's unrecognizable in some ways. And how does Neil Maxwell make it through? Because he turns to his faith in a deep way, and he recognizes the blessings that his family has been doing. And so he returns to his roots, and he finds that his faith can remain solid when everything else is shifting around him. And I hope that they can find that sort of same path in their lives. Thank you so much for that, Nate. Well, Nate, we have loved having you here today. It was so great to have your perspective as the editorial manager of Saints and all of that information that you were able to bring. It was so fun for me and our listeners are really going to appreciate that. So thank you. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. 
And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.